0: All right, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Again, if you uh, weren't here when Jared gave me that uh, amazing introduction, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors at Zoe Community Church in Allen, not that far away. I used to actually live in McKinney and make that commute over there. Um, but we, uh, we've had a relationship with uh, your pastors for a while now. We've known them for a few years. Um, I remember when pretty much every church in Collin County was fighting to have Lee be one of their pastors. And we lost the Lee Nakervis sweet stick, So um, our loss was your gain. So I'm glad that I could kind of, you know, just kind of touch his robe and, you know, just be blessed being here. Uh, we're, we're good friends with Jared. Um, I've known Jared for a while. We actually had Jared preach at our church a couple of times. Something going on here, a couple of times. Can you hear me? Sound OK? Yeah, so uh, we normally don't have guest preachers either at our church too often. When Jared spoke, it was probably one of the like three times we had ever done it. Um, and he preached on Psalm 23, and it was super good. Right? Psalm 23, the passage itself, is one of the most beautiful and beloved passages in the whole Bible. And uh, Jared, he killed it. He knocked it out of the park. All praise to God, not Jared. Uh, but it was really good. Everyone was blessed. Uh, and then I went on a sabbatical last year and we said, Why don't we have Jared come back? So he's the only two timer ever. Uh, and he came back and he preached from the Psalms again, Psalm, 20, uh, psalm 103 this time. Another beautiful psalm. You might remember some of the, the lines, you know, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God taken our sins from us. Right? So. That was great too, you know, a beautiful passage, and we're thankful for his service. And uh, I didn't ask, uh, I didn't ask Jared to speak, uh, expecting to be asked in return, right? It was just grace, you know. I'm not trying to scratch his back so he'll scratch mine. So when he asked me to preach here, I was honored. Uh, I, I felt like, wow, that's you know, that's a big privilege, you know, to be uh, asked to fill the pulpit of a different church. And uh, when he told me you're preaching through Matthew, I was even more pumped about it, because we preached through Matthew a few years ago, and I loved the book. And he said, it'll work out. You preach Matthew, we're doing it now. So why don't you preach on the passage where Jesus tells Peter to catch a fish, and there's money in its mouth. And Psalm 41:9 came to mind. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. <laughs> uh, I thought he was blessing me. I thought he was trying to, you know, just be a friend to me, and I thought he was honoring me. But really, what he was trying to do was set me up. He wanted me to talk about taxes and the strangest. One commentator called it the most embarrassing miracle of Jesus. Uh, I see how it is, though. It's okay. Right? Count it all joy when you face trials. Uh, of all kinds. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's, it's a blessing to be here. Uh, I'm glad for the opportunity. At Zoe, we always say it's not about the preacher of God's word, but it's about the preaching of God's word. That's why we try to have different people preach sometimes, because we want the focus to be on the Bible. And I actually wanted to preach this text. I, I don't want to misrepresent Jared. He gave me some choices. He gave me like two choices. This was one of them. But this is a text that a lot of people skip over. In fact, when you look through other churches that preach through Matthew, a lot of times they tack it on to another passage. They'll, they'll preach what Lee preached last week, and they'll say, OK, with five minutes left, uh, the shekel in the fish's mouth, oh, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we don't. Let's close in prayer, and let's never talk about that again. A lot of churches just rush through it. And I understand. I think when we preach through it, I actually preached it in a larger chunk of text. But the truth is, the, the word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, all scripture, every single passage and verse is God-breathed and is profitable for us. Every single word has something to say for us. So I think it's great that you're devoting an entire week to this strangest of passages. Um, But let me pray because God knows that I need it, and then we'll get into it. So let me pray, and if you're not there already, you can open to Matthew 17, Father, we're thankful for this time that we could be here. God, we know that every single one of us is not here by accident. God, that you're in control, that you are sovereign, you have a plan. God, that you brought us to church today, you brought us to Parkway. God, you brought us here to hear and to sit under your holy word. And we know that your word has something for us today. So God, I pray that you would speak through it, God, not my words, not me, but your words. God, I pray that you would use this in some way to speak to where we're at. God, that you would bring encouragement to those who need encouragement, that you would bring conviction to those who need conviction. For all of us, God, I pray that you would use this passage, God, to bring us to Christ. And I pray that he would be magnified and exalted during these next few minutes. God, we look to him. All glory to him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. On June 15th, 1520, Pope Leo X issued the papal bull, ex-serge domine. You don't have to know Latin. But this papal bull threatened a certain renegade monk named Martin Luther that if he didn't stop teaching, that if he didn't stop his writing, and from Rome's point of view, his troublemaking, that they would excommunicate him, that they would arrest him and charge him for heresy. This could mean imprisonment. This could even mean execution. It could mean death. The order was pretty clear, seize and desist or else. And remember, the Roman Catholic Church was the most powerful entity in his world at the time. So what do you think Martin Luther did? He gets this letter, it's out there, they're threatening him, his livelihood. What do you think he did? Well, instead of seizing and desisting, Luther cranked up his output into overdrive. On August 18th of the same year, just a couple months later, he published To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. And then two months after that, on October 6th, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. You might have read it. And then in November, he put out on the freedom of the Christian. Luther would not be silenced. When they told him to to stop talking, he talked even louder. He was compelled to speak, for he truly believed that what he said reflected what God was actually saying in scripture. And the word of God cannot be bound. Luther felt the world needed to hear what God actually said. Now, the third of these writings that he mass-produced really quickly on the freedom of the Christian was Luther's attempt to persuade the Roman Catholic Church that the theology of the Reformation, his theology, was not a made-up thing. It wasn't Lutheran theology. It was actually a recovery of the very heart of biblical Christianity. And it begins with these two statements. Now, listen to this. See if there's anything weird here. The first statement A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. And then right after this, he has a second statement. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. Now, what do you make of this seeming contradiction? Servant of all, free of all, dutiful to everybody, Lord of all, servant of none. What do you make of this? You know, the church has long wrestled with balancing kind of these two uh, different ideas, this tension within Christian theology. On the one hand, you have this tendency toward legalism, a tendency toward slowly adding rules and stipulations to what it means to be Christian. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because a lot of people are serious about their faith. I know Parkway is serious about the word of God. And you read the Bible, and it says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. The Christian life is supposed to be hard. So it resonates with some of us why we'd want to make it more rule-based, why we'd want to have certain ways to evaluate how we're doing. But then on the other hand, you have this tendency toward license especially in gospel-centered churches, which Parkway is as well, a tendency toward grace and knowing that uh, by the flesh, by our own strength, we can never be godly and holy. Now, unfortunately, this tendency uh, leads toward not worrying too much about holiness at all, eventually. It leads toward maybe even justifying sin. I mean, we're all sinners, right? The Bible says that every day. I'm a sinner. I am the worst of sinners, the chief. Are we totally depraved? So we might as well just sin, and then grace will abound. Now, we're in Matthew 17. Uh, We're more than halfway through the book, and things are starting to heat up at this point. If you've been here through the series, you can kind of see the movement of how Matthew is writing this book. And Jesus has been saying some surprising things, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, you thought the Pharisees were hardcore. Jesus raises the stakes. He says, you have to be perfect. The standard is perfection. It seems like he's laying the heaviest yoke possible upon those who would want to follow him. But then in Matthew 11, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So which is it? Is the yoke perfection, doing everything right? Or is the yoke easy and light? Is it serve everyone, serve God with every breath you have? Or is it freedom? What do you make of this seeming contradiction? Let's get into the text today. We're going, to look at three, we're going to look at this in three parts, OK? I'm going to try to make it a little bit more Parkway style. But also, this is the way I roll. So first, we're going to see a loaded question. OK, a loaded question. Look at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? OK, so real quick, Capernaum was a fishing town in Galilee. Okay, Jesus grew up in this northern Israel area. And Capernaum was specifically the home base for Jesus and his ministry. It's where Peter lived. And it's where Matthew himself, the author of the book, once collected taxes. Capernaum is a very important city for these people. Now, for those of you who have been around for a while, or even just church, and Jared even mentioned it. He talked about taxes, and how I'm going to tell you about taxes. When you hear taxes in the Bible, when you hear about tax collecting, for most Christians, your mind immediately goes somewhere. Right? We might think of the famous parable that Jesus told. I actually preached it at Zoe just a few weeks ago, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Or you might think about uh, toward the end of the Gospel of Luke when this short little guy named Zacchaeus climbs up a tree because he wants to see Jesus. He's a tax collector. If you know anything about the history of tax collecting in Israel, you know that tax collectors were the most despised category of sinner. I mean, they would say tax collectors and sinners. They were that bad. And it's because they were traitors. Right? Tax collectors were Israelites who, uh, for some reason, joined with Rome. Okay, So Rome had taken over. They were in charge. Tax collectors took advantage of their own people on behalf of their subjugators. And the thing about tax collectors was they had a reputation for extortion, too. So Rome would lay kind of a heavy burden upon these people that were really under their feet. Maybe 30%, whatever it might be, of everything you make, you got to give it to Caesar. But then the tax collectors would show up. They were your fellow countrymen, your neighbors. They would show up and say, actually, give me 40 And you couldn't argue because if you said, well, isn't it only 30? I don't want to give you 40. They would turn you in for tax evasion. They had the whole power of the Roman legion behind them. So they would just skim off the fat off the top. They would pocket all of that from themselves and you couldn't stop them. They had the authority of the Roman empire behind them. They do this to their own fellow countrymen again, their own neighbors, even their own family. I mean, if you think about it, Israel, technically, they were all kin, they were all descended from the same family. All this to say, tax collectors were soulless. They were the worst of the worst. They uh, were the ones that you look to as an example of those who are far from God. And it's why it was such a big deal that Matthew was called by Jesus to be a disciple. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it was a scandal that when the tax collectors were drawing near and, and eating with Jesus and wanting to hear the good news. Now, that being said, this is a different tax here. So thank you. Phew. I thought I had to teach on actual taxes and tell you to like uh, don't evade the IRS or anything like that. This is not the same tax. This is actually very different. Don't jump to any assumptions. This is not the Roman tax. This is not a gift to Caesar, what is Caesar's kind of thing. This is the two drachma tax. Now, okay, what is that? We need to do a little explaining here. A drachma was a Greek coin made out of silver, Okay. Now, it was roughly equivalent to the Roman denarius. And you see Jesus talk about the denarius sometimes. Now, a denarius was one day's worth of work, Okay, the, the payment for one day's worth of work. So whatever you do for your job right now, right? whatever you do, you could take the hourly rate and you could multiply it by eight hours or whatever it might be. Whatever one day's worth of salary is for you, that's what the denarius or the drachma is. And this, this drachma or two drachma tax, two days worth of work, was the tax for the temple. So we got to talk about the temple briefly. And I know this is a lot, but you have to understand why this simple question of does your teacher not pay the tax, why this question is so loaded. If you look at Nehemiah 10, 32 through 33, I think we could put it up on the screen. When the Jewish people rebuilt Jerusalem after the exile and they rebuilt their temple, they took upon themselves the obligation to give annually to support the temple, all the workings, all the things inside. And let me read what they said. They said, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel. That's another unit of money for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So for the temple, understand, the people decided to give a little bit of their money so that their their worship and their religion could go on. This was about 400 years before Jesus. Now, this practice didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, back in Exodus 30, when God had Moses and the Israelites construct the tabernacle, the tent that was the portable temple, what they did was call every Hebrew male 20 years and older to give a half shekel for the service of the tent of meeting. It was a census tax. It was an atonement offering. It reminded the people that their lives belonged to God and that they needed a temple. They needed a place to go to. They needed priests because their relationship with God was severed. They needed a bloody sacrificial system. Why? Because the forgiveness of sins requires the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22. The wages of sin is death. So by the time of Jesus, this practice had transformed into what we see here, okay? A denarius was one day's worth of work. That was a Roman unit of measurement, a drachma was the same thing, but it was a Greek unit of measurement. And then a shekel was a Hebrew unit of measurement. And a shekel was about four drachmas, four days worth of work. It's confusing. Okay, You can kind of see why Jesus goes into the temple and he sees these money changers because you need people to kind of give you the different money, the money that you need you understand the context a little bit, but to make it simple for us, the tax was just a once-a-year thing where you give a substantial amount of money, but it's for a good cause. It's to help your people. It's not the Roman tax. This is patriotic, right? This is not something that you do just because you know, it's your civic duty. This is something you do as a free will thing to support the religion of your people. I mean... Every good and faithful Jewish person, everyone who cared about God and country would, of course, want to support the temple, right? It's the very center of religious life. And if you kind of study the history of this time, there were five things, basically, that weren't required per se, but every Jewish person, every person who took their religion and faith seriously would do. First, they would travel to Jerusalem yearly and semi-annually for the different festivals and sacrifices. Second, they would go to the synagogue every single Sabbath for worship. Third, they would observe all of the national feasts. Fourth, they would seek to maintain some type of relationship with the Jewish diaspora, all the Jewish people who were scattered throughout the world, the Roman Empire. And then fifth, they would willingly and joyfully, cheerfully give to support the temple. They would pay this two drachma tax. This is what it meant baseline to be a good and faithful Jewish person. And this is why it's such a loaded question, because how Jesus responds will be very telling as to what he thinks is important. I mean, true or false? You've been reading through Matthew, you've been studying the gospel story, right? True or false? Jesus always does what traditionally Jewish people did. False. So many times, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Everyone is saying to do this, but that's totally wrong. They ask him, OK, are you going to give this two drachma tax? Are you going to support the temple? And you're not sure what he's going to say, even how they word it. Does he not pay it? They're assuming that he doesn't do it. It's not just about the money. They, they're good for two drachmas. It's about the significance. Does Jesus care about the things that are so dear to their hearts. I mean, Jesus has been blowing minds in Matthew. He's been teaching in a way that no one has ever heard. And he hasn't been afraid to take these unpopular stands, to go against the conventional religious wisdom. He's not afraid to offend people for the truth. So what is he going to say? What is his take on what it means to be good and faithful? You know, I met a guy um, a couple of years ago at church And uh, he is unusually faithful, I would say. He's the kind of guy who shows up to everything in church. And and I'm not saying that uh, that's better or worse, but it's something that I I noticed, right? If we have a special event, he's there early. We need to set up chairs for something, then he shows up and does it. If we have like a Sunday school class or if we have a theology class, he's there. Prayer meeting, he's there. Um, And it's not because he has a lot of free time. He has four young kids. Now, he's a police officer who works these crazy shifts, but he's always there. He stayed up all night. He shows up early the next day. And I was wondering why that was. And not that I was you know, suspicious of him or anything, but it was a little unusual. And we were meeting up, and we were talking, and I found out that he grew up in this church that was uh, full of technically optional things, but it was really mandatory. So they would have prayer meetings in the morning, and he would just have to go. Even though you didn't have to go, if you were actually serious about God, you would go. At this church, it was an unspoken rule. If you're actually a Christian, then of course you will cheerfully and joyfully and willingly do the things that good Christians do. Now, he left that church, thankfully. It's not our church. He left that church. But kind of that that discipline and that commitment is something that still sticks with him to this day. And he's been trying to kind of get out of some of that legalism. We should think about this. And Parkway Church, you should think about this. Just for the sake of your own discernment and self-awareness, is there anything in this church or in how you operate as a Christian where there, you know, it's technically optional according to the scripture, but for you right, or for us, if you're a good Christian, you would do it? You know what I mean? Right? like You don't have to read the Bible every day. There's no verse that says if you want to be saved, you got to have a quiet time of 30 minutes every single morning. But in some churches, if you say, you know, I haven't read the Bible in three months, people are going to look at you weird. They're going to question your salvation. And a lot of Christians, we live with kind of this low-grade, continuous guilt. Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I... Am I praying enough? Am I doing enough to be a good and faithful and serious Christian? And even though we know in the back of our minds that this isn't the gospel, we still kind of have this standard, this unspoken rule of what a good Christian is. I mean, just to make it really practical, I know a lot of mothers that I speak to or that uh, I hear share uh, from you know, my wife and things like that, they struggle with this guilt of not being a good enough Christian mother. And it's like every discussion that the moms have, every question is loaded, unintentionally, most likely, but it's loaded. Someone will say, oh, have you uh, started catechizing your kids yet? You know, I started when my kids were two. And maybe it is an innocent question, but then all the other moms are thinking, oh wait, am I behind? Am I not teaching my kids what they need to learn? Maybe they ask something like, have you read the new parenting book and you haven't even heard of it? But now you feel, again, like you're behind. You're not being a faithful mother. And again, you don't have to do it. And I'm not saying these things are bad either. But we start to build these layers upon layers of rules and things that we need to do to be good Christians. See, this passage isn't about just a couple of dollars. It's about the obligations that we feel, rightly or wrongly, that we have that are placed upon us. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax. Verse 25, what does Peter say? He just says, yes. They're soliciting at the door. They knock. Does your teacher not pay the tax? He's like, uh, yeah, sure. And then he ducks into the house. I don't think he actually knows. He's going to find out. And from here, we move to a loaded question to a little parable, a little parable. Jesus decides to teach a lesson here. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, remember, Capernaum is where Peter lived. If you're trying to picture what's going on here in your mind's eye, this is probably Peter's house. That's why he got the door. Someone knocks. How about that annual temple tax? Peter assumes the answer is yes, because that's what they've always done. But he's not totally sure, I think, because Jesus is different. So he goes inside maybe to get the money, maybe to check what Jesus wants to do. But as he kind of turns into the room and the other disciples are there, maybe Jesus is there, Jesus speaks up first. And he says, what do you think? He doesn't say who was at the door or he doesn't say Judas, go get the money from the money bags. This is a teaching moment. He says, what do you think? When you think of earthly kings, who do they tax, their sons or others? Now, this isn't a true parable, per se, but it does take a parable's form. A parable is a story that uses kind of everyday, generic characters and settings to teach a deeper spiritual truth. He doesn't say, "Okay, don't pay it. He doesn't say, just go pay it. Instead, he says, what do you think about the kings of the earth? And as always, Jesus is getting at something. And this is what I love about the Gospel of Matthew. See, I don't know if you've ever wondered about this, but you read the New Testament and you read Matthew and you're like, okay, cool. That was great. Turn to Mark. It's kind of the same thing. Turn to Luke, kind of the same thing again. Turn to John it's pretty different, but kind of the same thing. Why do we have four gospel accounts? Now, each of the gospel accounts, they do tell the same story of Jesus, but they tell it from a different perspective. And here's kind of how I like to think about it. John is the theologian. If you read John, uh, if you just open it up later today, you want to check it out. You're reading it right now. John is always concerned about what things mean. Right? It's so layered. It's why a new Christian could read it and a non-Christian could read it and why the most seasoned Christians still struggle to interpret what it means because it's so deep. I like to say it's the craziest book in the Bible. No offense to the other ones. Luke is the historian. Okay? His focus is on how everything kind of fits together. So he likes to put things in their context. He talks about what Caesar was doing during this time, what was happening in the world. He's very orderly. Mark is the storyteller. And I love the way that Mark tells the stories. Every single story he tells really pops with color and detail. He adds in things that the others don't have. And if you're wondering, how does Mark know he wasn't there? Church tradition history tells us that Mark wrote down from Peter's point of view. He was friends with Peter. He was discipled by Peter. Peter told these stories. He was there, and Mark wrote it down. And then we have Matthew. Matthew is the teacher, or maybe we could say the student. He's most concerned. He's the most concerned with Jesus' teaching. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew. He cares about the sermons, the lessons that Jesus had. Matthew showcases and spotlights Jesus as this teacher that we have never heard before. And so we have this unique story in Matthew, this unique teaching moment where Jesus takes just this regular annual thing, and he turns it into the most profound lesson about what it means to be part of the kingdom. What do you think, Simon? What do you think, Simon? And it's interesting. There's something, something subtle here. I don't know if you noticed it. But to the outside world, he's Peter. They asked Peter a question. Who is Peter the Rock? Right? It's almost like he's acting as a representative for the church. But when he goes back inside and now he's interacting with Jesus, he's still Simon the student who has a lot to learn. What do you think, Simon? Do kings tax their own kids or randos? Jesus isn't trying to make this hard on him. This is slow pitch, OK? Verse 26. And when he said from others, ding, 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 that's correct, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And there you go. You can close in prayer right here. No, I'm just kidding. This is not one of those obvious passages. Understand this. The temple tax was about supporting The temple, which is about supporting the religious system that God had set up, or at least that was the thought process. It was being good and faithful. But the question is: good and faithful for who? For whom? You know, going back to Martin Luther, you might know the story, but Martin Luther was not a Protestant when he was born. Okay, he was a Roman Catholic. He was a guy who was very gifted. He was studying law. He was going places. And then he got caught up in this crazy thunderstorm. And he thought he might die. So he made this rash vow to God. And he said, if you get me out of this alive, I'm going to serve you. And a lot of people do that, right? Like something crazy happens, you say, you know what? I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to become you know, a missionary or something. Most people, after they get out of it, they say, never mind. But Martin Luther was a uniquely serious guy. So after he survived, spoiler alert, he joined a monastery. Right? He, he shaved a circle into his head, right? And he put on the brown robes. And he joined the monastery as a monk. And he didn't just want to be kind of a low-quality monk. He wanted to be as faithful as he could to God. So you read the stories, and it's crazy what he was doing. He was fasting so much, it messed up his body. Right? He was like beating himself. He, he would go to confession hours a day because he was trying to think about all the sins that he committed so that he could repent. It got so bad that when he showed up to the confessional, the priests were like, oh, man, like Martin is here again. But he felt like he had to do this. That's the only way to be good and faithful, to do the right things, even though they might be technically optional. Because if I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I would live for him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was killing him. And then one day he was reading Romans 1, a verse he had read, a chapter he had read a million times, but something clicked this time. God opened his eyes to see what was there. Romans 1.17, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. He had seen it a million times, but he had lived, he had operated as the righteous shall live by works. The righteous shall live by serving. The righteous shall live by righteousness. But it said right there that the righteous shall live by faith. And he felt free. Now he could have read Matthew 17. Because what does Jesus say? Then the sons are free. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean? He means that the sons are free of obligation. This is what it means to be a prince. If your dad's the king, then you don't have to do the normal things that the citizens do. So the question isn't, do you need to pay taxes or not? The question isn't, do I need to show that I'm good enough? The question, no, is simply, are you a son or not? Jesus always reframes things. Are you a son or not? Jesus clearly is but this extends beyond Jesus. In fact, in John 1, I don't have this on the screen, sorry. Just listen. John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But in the same passage, even though Jesus is the only begotten son, it says, but to all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave them that right to become sons of the king. If you receive Christ by faith, you receive sonship. Now, I know that's kind of weird sometimes for the ladies to hear, but understand that in this culture, sonship meant that you received the inheritance. It was a status. Everyone who is in Christ receives the status of son, You're a child of the king, and that means that you are free. You know, just recently, we were preaching through parables. That's why we did the Pharisee and the tax collector. We also preached the parable of the prodigal son, the most famous parable of them all. And if you remember the story, even if you're not a Christian here today, you might be familiar with kind of the story beats, right? There's a younger son, and he wants... Right? He wants his share of the inheritance. He takes his father's money, and then he goes off and he squanders it on wild living. He spends it all, he blows it, and then he hits rock bottom. You know, Things get bad with the economy. There's you know, a famine in the land. And he finds himself as a Jewish person, not only starving, not only broke, but having to work with pigs. And if you know anything about kosher, you know that this is not kosher. When he's in the mud, right, he, he's so hungry that he wants to eat the pig's food, he remembers his father, and he says, you know, my father's servants, they have more than enough. I'll go back, and I'll say, I'm sorry that I have sinned, and I'll say, I'm not worthy to be a son. Just treat me as a servant. Just hire me, and, and let's just move on from there. And he goes back. And while he's still a long way off, his father sees him. And you know the story. His father runs to him. And his son says "You know what he had rehearsed, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm not worthy to be your son. But the father, he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Give him the family signet ring. Get him shoes. Slaughter the fattened calf. My son was dead and he is alive again, he was lost, and now he is found. He doesn't say, you're right, you're not worthy, you're not a son of mine anymore, go out back. Now, when you start to break down the story, I mean, the truth is, the son isn't worthy. He's not worthy if you had to earn sonship. But that's not how it works. It's not about worthiness, it's about the father's generosity. It's about his relationship with him. It's about his grace. So here's the lesson of Matthew 17, at least one of the lessons. Christianity, the religion that Jesus is establishing, the ethic of the kingdom of heaven, it's about freedom because Christianity is about grace. It's about freedom because Christianity is about grace. There is no obligation when it comes to Christianity for we could not earn sonship even if we tried. Sonship is not a thing you can earn. It can only be granted to you. I mean, Martin Luther tried so hard to be a son, to earn sonship. It wasn't until he realized salvation is only by grace through faith that he was free. So that being said, what about the temple tax? Galatians 5.1, I think we have it. It says, Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians is a book about fighting for this truth, that Christianity is about freedom. Jesus came to bring freedom. Fight for your freedom. And let this speak to you wherever you're at. When it comes to the Christian life, Christians are free. You don't need to feel this constant low-level guilt that is constantly operating in the background of so many Christians' minds. It's all grace. It always has been. Christian, you don't have to prove yourself. When you catch yourself comparing to someone else, stop yourself and remind yourself, preach to yourself that Christianity is a religion of grace and therefore freedom. God's love for you is not contingent on your performance, it's contingent on his generous, lavish love. But Jesus isn't done here. Look at verse 27, and we'll see lastly a lesson on love, a lesson on love. Jesus says, then the sons are free, however, now that's a big word, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And I was reading a commentary, like I said, that literally called this the most embarrassing miracle. And he didn't believe that, but he said so many commentators want to explain it away. They'll say, well, you know, sometimes people would drop money in the lake and, you know, fishes would eat it thinking that it was food or or maybe it was a catfish. You know, like it was very strange how they tried to argue it away just because it seems so weird. It seems so petty. Why would Jesus use supernatural power just for this? But it's not actually weird when you understand the bigger lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. Look at verse 27 again. Let's break it down. He says, not to give offense to them. Not to give offense, let's pay the tax. You're free, but not to offend them, let's pay the tax. Now, we got to talk about this because we live in a day and age where literally everyone is super offended by like everything. Right? You might be tired of trying to watch what you say and watch what you do because you know no matter how hard you try, people are going to take offense. I could come up here and say, you know, my favorite color is blue, but I like all the other colors. And someone's going to email and say, what about red? Isn't red so great? Or whatever it might be. I didn't even mean to use political colors, but it's just in my mind. (laughs) I like red, white, and blue, Okay? That's just the world we live in. It's the world we live in where people are looking to be offended. But think about Matthew for a moment. Think about Jesus. Again, was Jesus scared to offend people? Absolutely not. Now, it's not that Jesus, don't get me wrong, it's not that Jesus was trying to be you know, cruel to people. He wasn't trying to be unnecessarily harsh. But I mean, in chapter 23, you'll get there pretty soon, he calls out the Pharisees and he calls them fools. He calls them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. I mean, Jesus will say hard things. He will say things that are not easy to stomach if they are true and are necessary to hear. So what gives here? Why does he give this warning about not offending people? Just say, look, all right, we're, we're part of Jesus's crew. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. Peter already declared this. And you know, we're going a different way. We don't need the temple, right? Jesus is the true temple. Whatever it might be, why not say these things well, it's important to understand that the word offended here in the, word, uh, in the original Greek is at root the word scandalizo. Okay, scandalizo. It's related to the word group from which we get the word scandalize, scandal, those things. But scandalizo, okay, in this context carries the connotation of causing someone to stumble, someone to, to fall into sin, someone to lose faith. What he's concerned about, what Jesus is worried about here, is about putting a stumbling block in front of people who are wanting to believe. At Galatians 5, Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But what does he say right after this in Galatians 5, 2? He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that you, if, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. How can you fall away from grace? The only way you could fall away from grace is when you choose to turn away from the only hope that you have toward trusting in yourself, trying to earn your salvation. This is what Galatians is about. It's a book of freedom. It's a book about the gospel. Now, the Galatians were in danger of basically walking away. They believed Jesus died for them, but they also wanted to add on works. People were teaching that you needed to do certain things to become a Christian, namely circumcision. And you know, if you have any questions about circumcision, I heard Lee's doing Q and A, so you can ask him about it later. <laughs> But basically, circumcision was a sign that you were part of the covenant people. Okay, so what they were saying was you got to become a Jew to become a Christian, essentially. Paul in this letter is very harsh. He doesn't want people to go down that path. Heaven and hell literally hang in the balance. The gospel itself is at stake. So he says, look, if you go this way, then you're falling away from grace. He says, if you teach circumcision, you might as well emasculate yourself and go to hell because you are accursed. Cling to freedom. That being said, you know what's interesting? If you read the book of Acts, the same Paul who who said, stand firm therefore and do not submit to a yoke of slavery was taking Timothy on a missionary journey. And because Timothy was half Jewish, half Greek, he wasn't circumcised. And Luke tells us in Acts that he circumcised Timothy. I don't know if he did it personally or what. And Timothy was an adult. He had him circumcised. Why? So that the Jewish people that they evangelized to wouldn't be stumbled. What do you make of this seeming contradiction? What we see with Paul is an illustration of what Jesus is teaching in our passage this morning. There's a difference between what is The principle we need to hold fast to and believe and how we should personally use our freedom. Let me say that again. There's a difference between the principle and what is personal. And this is how we resolve the tension. The principle is freedom. That's what the gospel is. It's not by works. You can just believe in Christ and you are saved. You're as saved as you're ever going to be. But the personal application is love. Because later on in Galatians 5, again, this is what he says. Same passage, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, here's the problem. See, legalism, it says that there is no freedom in Christ. It's just a heavier yoke. You got to just do all these things or else. License says that you are free, but free to sin. Let's continue sinning. Let's continue dishonoring God why? Because God is gracious. But what the gospel actually says is not it's not legalism or license. It's liberty. It's freedom. It's not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Freedom from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin in the future. See, our freedom that we are given by Christ, it's not just an opportunity to enjoy the rights and privileges of being a son of God, but to also act like the Son of God did. And how did he act? How did the Son of the living God act It says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For us. If anyone should know what this means, it should be Christians. And what did? The passage last week talk about what did Jesus talk about? He again foretold his death and resurrection. That's why he came. See, it's the cross of Christ that solves the seeming contradiction of Christianity. We are totally free because of Christ, because he died for us. But we are servants of all because of Christ, because he, though God himself, became a servant and died for us. You don't have to love anybody. You get to, because he loved you. Friends, Jesus wants Peter and us as readers of Matthew to understand that this kingdom is not one of legalism or license. It's better than that. It's a kingdom where you're free, free to love your brothers, free to love your neighbors, even your enemies, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Because you get to. You know, my friend, the guy that I met who was part of kind of that cult-like church, he said that when he first left that church, and he went to this different church, it was in a different state, he said he went to the prayer meeting uh, by himself, and you know, he wanted to check it out. And he was used to 100% attendance at the prayer meeting because you had to. He showed up, and there were like 10 people there. And he said it was the most awesome thing because he knew that the 10 people there were there because they wanted to. One more thing in conclusion. Why the miracle? I was going to say we ran out of time. Don't want to talk about it. I kind of am out of time. Sorry. But one more thing in conclusion. Why the miracle? Why not have Peter go fishing, sell the fish at least? Why not have Judas just cough up the money? Why use supernatural power? Read verse 27 again. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Two drachmas, okay was equivalent to half a shekel. Yeah, a shekel is four drachmas. So if there's a full shekel I don't know it's like a word problem if there's a full shekel in its mouth, basically what he's saying is, there's enough for me and for you, Peter. And that's what he says: Take it and pay the tax for both of us. Why does this matter? Well I'll illustrate this as we close with Corrie ten Boom. I'm not a crier, but sometimes I cry when I talk about Corrie ten Boom. I think I've inoculated myself, so I won't. Um, but if you don't know who she is, Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian woman who, along with her family, was arrested by the Nazis for trying to help the Jews. And she and her sister and you know, the rest of her family, they were put into a concentration camp and her sister died there. Her father died under you know, imprisonment from the Nazis. She miraculously got out because of a clerical error. And after she got out, she would travel. And, and she had this burden on her heart to, to try to reach the German people, especially, with the gospel. She wanted to bring reconciliation by sharing her testimony. And she was in Germany. Right after the war, at a church service, she was asked to share a testimony after. She shared about how there's freedom in Christ. right? No matter what you've done, right? God can take your sins as far as the east is from the west. And then she saw this guy, a former SS guard from the camp that she was in, the, the camp that her sister died in. He was one of their tormentors. And he comes up to her after, and he says, what a wonderful testimony, Freulein, right? Praise God. You know, after, you know, I was, he says, I don't know if you know this, but I was in the camp that you were in, and she's like, of course I know this. But he said, after the war, I became a Christian, and I am so thankful that God has forgiven me. I know Christ has has died for my sins, but I want to ask you for your forgiveness. And he reached out his hand to shake her hand, and everything in her did not want to take this guy's hand. All the memories came flooding back. She hated in her flesh the thought of having to just extend forgiveness so glibly, so freely. But she also knew in the back of her mind that she had just shared that God, by grace, gives us freedom, that he takes our sins away. And if Jesus had died for this guy's sins and my sins, if Jesus forgave him and me, how could I not? So she prayed, Lord, forgive me for my bitterness. Forgive me for my hate. I will reach out my hand. I don't feel like it, but I will. You're going to need to help me. You're going to have to supply the feeling. And she took his hand, and she said the most incredible thing happened. She felt a change in her heart. It ran through her arm to her hand to his, a feeling of true forgiveness and grace that could only come from the Lord. And she discovered that when he tells us to love, he gives, along with the command to love, also the grace to love. Look, the the Christian life is actually simple. You are under obligation to nobody. No one can judge you. You don't have to measure up to anyone else. Just believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The Christian life is simple, but it's not easy. For the Christian life is more than following rules or doing whatever you want. It's about being conformed into the image of the Son of God. It's about sacrificial love for the good of others. It's about being free from sin so that you could be used by God in this world. It's not easy. But Jesus, just as he supplied the two drachma attacks for Peter, just as he supplied the love for Corey Ten Boom to forgive, he will supply the strength. What a Parkway. What if the Parkway Church lived utterly free and yet, at the same time, utterly selfless. What kind of impact would that have? What kind of witness? What kind of fruit? Let's pray to that end. Father, we pray that you would use the gospel to do what only it can do. I pray that you would help us to live as those who are free. God, not to use our freedom to serve our flesh, but to use our freedom to serve you. Thank you, God. We pray that you would be our help praising in Christ's name. Amen.